We come to a passage this morning, this chapter, and we're going to look at Jesus as the betrayed friend. And I'm sure many of you have experienced betrayal or feelings of abandonment or feelings of desertion. Maybe some of you sitting right now are feeling like you are the one who has betrayed a friendship or deserted or abandoned or let someone else down. Whether it's a friend or a spouse or a family member or a brother or a sister or even a child that, that has harmed a relationship, we've all probably, most likely, experienced what Jesus is experiencing in this chapter. As we come to this chapter, um, I want to go through it, try to go through it in order. So if you have your worship guide, you can look on the back of that and you will see an outline provided for you. But what we're going to see this morning is that Jesus is a friend for sinners, even the ones who betray him, including us. And so as we go through this chapter this morning, would you follow along with me? We're going to start by looking at Jesus being anointed for his death and the the beginning process of Judas selling him out. So this takes place on a Tuesday. If you look at verses 1 through 11, this place takes place on the Tuesday before Jesus' death. So what we're going to do as part of walking through chapter 14 is actually walk through the week, which, which in our church calendar is called Holy Week. We're walking through that week leading up to Jesus' arrest and death. And so this is Tuesday. It says it's two days before Passover. Passover to be uh, practiced on that Thursday, what we often call in the church Maundy Thursday and celebrate communion with the church. So Tuesday, Jesus is in a house in Bethany, And a lady comes in, a woman. In other passages, this woman is known as a sinner, meaning that she was most likely a notorious sinner, one that was looked down on in society. And so this woman brings a very expensive jar of oil and anoints Jesus. And so this is taking place three days before Jesus' death, and Jesus actually says that this anointing, whether or not the woman knew it or not, this anointing is actually preparing him for his death. Just like in that culture, after someone died, they would anoint their body with oil and seasons and and, and all those types of things. Well, this woman, whether she knows it or not, is anointing Jesus with oil. Now, in that scene, what you get is it says the disciples in other passages, and what's interesting is that this story shows up in all four Gospels. So not often, you know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke often have a lot of overlapping story, but John sometimes has his own stories that he highlights. Well, this story and a few others is in every single of the four Gospels. And so what you have there is, it says, they asked him, why was this wasted, basically? Why was this oil wasted? This could have been sold, look at verse Five, this could have been sold for more than 300 denarii or denarii and given to the poor. And we actually know that the person specifically asking this question is Judas. And in other Gospels, we're actually, it's actually explained that his intention really wasn't to help the poor. It was actually because he was the one who took care of the money bag and he would help himself to that from time to time. So this is Judas's greed, really, 
being expressed outwardly as virtue or as moral, morality. In our world today, there's a phrase going around called virtue signaling. Maybe you've heard that, maybe you haven't. A a quick definition of what virtue signaling is, is this. It's an action or practice of publicly expressing opinions or feelings with the intention of demonstrating or hoping to express your own good character or moral correctness on a position or issue. So otherwise, it's speaking out loud about something to try to make yourself look better. You speak about issues, you speak about something that you hate, you speak strongly about something that you are for. A few examples of this is that oftentimes people will speak publicly in a discussion with other people, maybe who are like-minded, about things or people that they hate or despise basically to make that group or themselves feel a little bit better about themselves. Another thing is to share on social media what's wrong with the world, but not actually doing much about it. You know, posting things about world hunger, how much you can feed a hungry child for in a day, you know, for the price of coffee, you could, you know, solve the hunger of one child, but then do you actually take that money for coffee and do that? It's virtue signaling. It makes you feel a little bit better in that moment when you hit share or whatever, when you post it, makes you feel a little bit better about yourself. Another example is on a day like today, Mother's Day or Father's Day, there's a trend on social media, whether it's Instagram or Snapchat or Snapchat or probably now TikTok. I know I'm showing myself, right? I'm showing how involved I am in those things. But there's a trend on a day like Mother's Day or Father's Day to make a really nice post about your mom or dad, but then never actually call them or say anything to them or get them a gift, and they don't happen to have Instagram or TikTok. What are you doing? You're virtue signaling. You're showing your friends and your followers how much you love your parents, but don't actually tell your parents. You see what this means? You see what this is? This, this idea of virtue signaling, publicly expressing what you hope to present as your goodness, your good character, your own morality, so that others would be impressed about you. Maybe it's talking publicly or even, again, on social media about your great marriage, your great spouse, your great kids, when in reality, behind the scenes, things are really, really hard. Things are not going well. This happens all the time. And in this moment, that's exactly what Judas and the other disciples are doing. They're virtue signaling. They're trying to say something in this moment about this woman who is a notorious sinner, put her down and say, this is a waste. She's wasting this money. This could have been spent on the poor. When in reality, that's not their intention at all. And Jesus says, the poor will always be with you. There's always going to be opportunities to help people, to show mercy to people, to serve people. But in this moment, what this woman has done is good. It's an extreme act of generosity and worship. And whether she knows it or not, she's acknowledging, I'm going to the grave. And so what does Jesus say? He says, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the world, this woman's story will not be forgotten. Now what's interesting, again is this is one of the few stories that shows up in every single gospel narrative. 
Turns out Jesus knew what he was talking about. So here you have this, this, this virtue signaling what's going on with Judas, and then we actually see what happens with Judas. A few verses later, it says, Judas goes out to betray him to the chief priest, and they were glad to promise him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. So what's going on with Judas right here? Well, he's just spoken out for what, you know, what people might have thought was good, but Jesus kind of confronts his heart. And when Jesus confronts our heart, we have one of two options. To run away scared, to hide away in our sin, or to acknowledge the sin that's there when Jesus confronts us with the truth. And Judas chooses to run away in fear. And we're going to see later on in the chapter what Peter decides to do in that moment of conviction. So Judas runs away and in embarrassment decides to make the worst decision in the history of mankind towards another person. To betray Jesus, to sell him out, to deliver him over, to be to death. And so just before we move on to the next few verses, what are some things we can pull out of this section here? Again, Jesus is being betrayed, and yet Jesus is going to serve Judas the Lord's Supper, communion. He's going to break bread with Judas and with the other disciples. He's going to forgive. He's going to show mercy to them. And so what, this, what we can pull out of this first few verses is that this will or has probably happened to you. Where you've either known you were getting ready to be betrayed or, or you've felt betrayed and you had an opportunity to show mercy to that person to fellowship with that person, to forgive that person. And so whether or not you did, what we are called to do as believers is to forgive. Even in the most difficult situation to forgive, we're called to forgive those who have betrayed us. Another thing to point out, this actually happens in ministry a lot. Not just for pastors, for anyone who is in ministry. You, you invest in someone in the same way Jesus invested in Judas for three years, let Judas follow him in ministry, taught him, fellowshiped with him, fed with him, was a friend to him, and then Judas betrayed him. And that happens in ministry. It happens in our workplaces, co-workers that we help. And sometimes we get betrayed. We get abandoned. People hurt us. Again, we are called to forgive. How? How are we able to forgive these people that hurt us in this way? The Bible says we forgive because Jesus has forgiven us. You see, when we realize that we are Judas, we are Peter, we are the ones who have daily, every time we sin, betrayed the friendship that Jesus has shown us, denied Him, either in our actions or in our words, that we are the ones that Jesus consistently and continually forgives and welcomes back. When we realize how much He has forgiven us, that enables us to forgive others. So that's the first section we see. The second section we see takes place on a Thursday. The Thursday when He breaks bread with His disciples, He shares the Passover and the Lord's Supper with them. So from verses 12 to 26, Jesus is sitting down with his disciples. Again, Judas is there, and, and he's about to be sold out. 
He knows. He even predicts it. He says, I'm, a, I'm about to be betrayed into the en- enemy's hands. One of you are going to be the one to, to do it. And he's still sitting down and eating with them. He knows he's going to be arrested. He knows he's going to be tried. He knows he's going to be t- beaten and torn apart, crucified, tortured, and killed. And so what does he do? Well, he continues in obedience. We confess this from Philippians 2, that he obeyed even to the point of death, death on a cross. So there's five quick points under this section that I want you to get. Here's what Jesus does in this section. He obeys the law. He serves His disciples. He trusts God's sovereignty. He worships with His people. And then He makes a promise to them. So let me just break those down real quick. He obeys the law. How does He do that? Well, when they are taking of the Passover meal together, remember, that was a, that was a Jewish Old Testament command of God that they would do that annually. The point was to remember how God had delivered the people out of Egypt. And so this is an act of obedience, but it's also an act of faith and worship. And so Jesus is leading His disciples in this act of obedience. They're obeying God, loving God, and remembering how God has delivered His people. Second thing under this point is that He is serving His disciples. He's the one that breaks the bread. He's the one that pours out the cup. In John, we also see that he's the one that gets down on his knees as a servant to wash their feet. So Jesus is serving his disciples. In other words, fulfilling the law of love to neighbor. He's loving his neighbors as as himself. He's eating with them, demonstrating the breaking of bread, which is an intimate act of fellowship, even with Judas. And then he trusts God's sovereignty. Where do we see that? In verse 21, it actually says, The Son of Man goes just as it has been written of Him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man had He not even been born. This is, this is Jesus acknowledging God is sovereign in this moment. Judas, the one who is going to betray Me, even that was ordained by God. He's trusting God's sovereignty in in the hardest point of his life leading to his death, his arrest, his betrayal. Jesus is saying, even this is all a part of God's good plan. But notice, he doesn't excuse Judas' sin. Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better if he had not even been born. Those are strong words. What is Jesus saying? You know, there's, there's different interpretations about uh, Judas's destiny, right? You know, at the end of Judas's life, it seems like he's remorseful over what he did. He returns the money and he goes out and, uh, and you see just intense sorrow. But my understanding from Jesus's own words is that Jesus, is Judas never repented. It would have been better for Judas had he not even been born. Why? Because he's been born, he's lived, he's betrayed the Christ, and he didn't, he didn't repent. What does that mean? It means Judas' eternal destiny is hell. Those who do not repent and turn to Christ in faith and ask for forgiveness, 
Our, their eternal destiny, if they do not believe, is hell. And so it would have been better for anyone who does not believe in Jesus that they had never been born. That's a sombering, sobering thought, isn't it? And so Jesus being very honest about God's sovereignty, but at the same time honest about man's sinfulness. He trusts God's sovereignty. Then he worships with his people. Look at verse 26. It says, When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now, it was actually tradition during the time of Passover for God's people, the Israelites, to sing Psalms 113 to 118. Those are called the Hallel Psalms. Hallelujah. Those psalms that start or have the phrase, praise the Lord in them. And so the, the last night of Passover Thursday, it was believed that the psalm that they would sing was Psalm 118. A psalm that talks about the Lord's salvation. Talks about praising the Lord for His love. His love endures forever. So what is Jesus reminding His disciples and what is He reminding Him of Himself? He's reminding himself that the Lord loves us even in our worst moments. I was listening to a podcast this past week about a, a father who their, um, his wife carried a child full term to nine months. And they lost that child. Her name was Layla. They lost that child just before delivery, miscarriage, at nine months old. And it was devastating. And he would have this thing that he would do with his son, who was going to be the older brother, who was all confused now. And he would have this tradition that he would do every night before that child would go to bed. And he would say, son, look at the moon. What shape is the moon tonight? And depending on what they could see, he would say, the moon's a crescent moon, or the moon's a half moon, or three-quarters moon, or a full moon. And he would say, son, what shape is the moon always? And the son would say, the moon is always round. What does that teach us, son? It teaches us that God is always good. And he used that example to say, you know, sometimes you don't see the moon at all. Sometimes you only see part of the moon. Sometimes you see more of it, but there's still some darkness there. Or sometimes you see all of it. But in all of those stages of the moon, the moon's always there, and it's always round whether you see it or not. And the same is true of God's goodness. That even in the hardest moments, when you don't see it, God is still good. He's always good. The moon is always round, and God is always good. And so that's what we see here, Jesus trusting God's sovereignty and worshiping God because of that. And then he leaves his disciples with a promise. He says, I will not take of this meal again until I take it with you in the kingdom of God. See, even right before he goes to his death, he's still reminding his disciples that there's going to be an eternal kingdom. He had told his disciples, I'm going to die, but I'm going to rise again. Reminding them of the covenant and of the promise of God to save his people and to bring about a new kingdom. But in order for that to happen, the Son of Man had to suffer and had to die. So Jesus obeys, He serves, He trusts, He worships, and He makes a promise to His people. Now one point of application here, look at verse 19. Right after Jesus said, one of you will betray me, look at the disciples' response. 
It says they began to be sorrowful and asked him one after another, is it I? I actually heard an entire sermon on this preached to a group of pastors one time. And the person who was preaching said, how many of us in, that, in this room would have asked that question? Is it I? Or how many of us would have been thinking, yeah, but not me? How many of us in this room today, if we were told by Jesus himself, one of, one of you is going to betray Jesus? How many of us would think, surely not me? I'm faithful. I love Jesus. I know him. And yet these disciples who had been with him for three years, who had been taught by him, every single one of them asking, is it me? Jesus, please say it's not me. The one who was going to betray him already knew, but the others, they didn't know. What does that show us? It shows us a shade of humility, doesn't it? A shade of understanding how weak and vulnerable and feeble and given to temptation they really are. Now, they had learned this from Jesus in ministry, hadn't he? Hadn't they? They, he, he had shown them time after time that everything he says is true. So if he says one of us is going to betray him, he's true. He always tells the truth. So one of us will. And if we don't know who it is, let's try to figure that out. But also they had found out how weak and feeble their faith was. We're going to look next week at the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000. But over and over in Jesus' ministry, he keeps showing the disciples how weak their faith is. And so they understand it could be any of us. If Jesus says it's true, it could be any of us. And so let us, let, let us just take a lesson from the disciples' humility that any of us are susceptible to sin, to temptation, and even denying Christ Himself. Next section is 27 to 42. The verse is 27 to 42. And it says that after they had sung that hymn, they went off into the garden. There's a, there's a book called the Jesus Storybook Bible. I heard a funny story about this one time. And uh, at the end of the section on the Lord's Supper in the Jesus Storybook Bible, it says, Jesus then took his disciples to his favorite place to, pr to pray, an olive garden. And there was a teacher who was reading that to a group of children, and one of the children raised their hands and they said, I didn't know Olive Garden was around back then. So, <laughs> I know, that's a funny moment, right? Imagine you being the teacher and you're thinking, oh no, okay, how am I going to get out of this one? But Jesus, he did. He loved to go to this place to pray. We just looked last week. This is where he was when he was talking to the disciples about the temple. One of the reasons he probably liked to go up on this mountain of olives and into this garden to pray is because he could get away. It was somewhat secluded from the city. But at the same time, you could still see the city. You could still see the temple. So God's promised people, His temple right there, you could see it, but then you could also be away and be quiet and be with the Lord. And so He's inviting His disciples into this intimate moment with Him. He knows He's about to be betrayed. This is the night before He's betrayed. The night of His betrayal, really. And he's asking his disciples one last time, come with me to my special place where I go to be with my Father. Come with me and pray with me. And what do we see take place? Well, the eleven go with him, and then he actually takes the three, Peter, James, and John, who spent 
most time with Jesus while he was in, on earth, and he took them a little bit farther, and he left them by a tree, and then he went a stone's throw away, just a little bit farther away to pray on his own. And he told them, he said, my soul is troubled to the point of death. Pray for me. And he goes off to pray. And we know what he prays in that moment. He prays that the Lord would let this cup pass from him, that if there was any way for Jesus not to have to go through what he knows he's about to go through, if anyone out there thinks Jesus was surprised or didn't know exactly what was going to take place, he knew exactly what was going to take place. This is why he came. He came to suffer. He came to die. He came to go to the cross for his people. And he's praying, Lord, if there's any way at all, if there's any other way to accomplish salvation for our people, let this cup pass for me. But not what I will, what you will. And so three times he goes off and prays, and he comes back to find these three friends who you could argue were his best friends on earth, at least the ones that he spent the most time with, and he... he poured into the most, these three friends three separate times fall asleep on him. Think, think about how Jesus would have felt in this moment. If you have ever felt betrayed or alone or abandoned by friends, Jesus knows your feelings. The book of Hebrews tells us we have a high priest who, who can identify with our weaknesses, who like us, was tempted in every way, and yet he never sinned. Jesus knows our weakness. He knows our sadness. He knows when we're truly feeling alone and abandoned, even when it's by our best friends. And so Jesus prays. But even in this moment, you see Jesus' act of faith to his Father and his act of obedience. Now again, just to apply this uh, section here, Look at Jesus' prayer specifically. What does He pray? He prays, Abba, Father, calls out to His Father, and then He honestly confesses what He's feeling, that he, if there's any other way, Lord, let this pass from me. I'm troubled to the point of death, but not what I will, what you will. And if you remember what Jesus taught His disciples to pray in the Lord's Prayer, what did He teach His disciples? He taught them to pray to their Father in heaven, Holy is His name. Taught them to pray honestly for their needs, for their daily bread, for forgiveness, that Jesus, that the Father would deliver them from temptation and evil. But to also pray, Your kingdom come and Your will be done, for Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory. Do you see how much overlap there is in Jesus' honest prayer in the garden and how He taught us to pray? We pray acknowledging who God is as our Father, praising Him, worshiping Him. We can tell Him honestly how we feel, but we can also surrender and say, Lord, whatever You have for me, help me to trust You and follow Your plan. So Jesus prays in the garden. The fourth thing from this section, verses 43 to 52, I'm going to go through this part pretty quick, but it's, it's His Betrayal. Judas betrays him, sells him out. And how does he do it? He does it with an act of cultural 
intimacy. First, he goes to him and calls him rabbi. Now, rabbi was a phrase that was used of mentors, of friends, of teachers. It was a title of honor and respect. It was going to Jesus and saying, Rabbi, but then what does he do? He kisses him, which was a greeting for friends and family, an intimate greeting. And what does Jesus say in other in other? stories of this moment he says would you betray the son of man with a kiss you see jesus being betrayed in the most intimate way and then what happens to the disciples verse 50 tells us that they ran away they ran away in fear now what's interesting is the section right before this if you go back to verse 31 Peter denied that he would ever deny Jesus. But then also, look at verse 31. He said, that is Peter, he said emphatically, I must, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. That's all the disciples. They all said the same. But then look at verse 50. And they all left him and fled. These are the same disciples who just a little while ago said, Jesus, is it us? Is it me? Am I the one? We saw that example of humility, and now, three hours later, they're all running away in fear. We're just like that, aren't we? We're flaky, too. We're bipolar believers. We can be the same, you know, some have taken these moments and said, you know, at that moment of their humility, the disciples were at their highest point. And then, just a few hours later, they were at their lowest point. They ran away in fear. But I actually want to turn that around. Because when they were demonstrating humility, they were at their lowest point. What do I mean? It means they saw themselves as lowly. As those who could easily run away in weak faith. But then when they thought highly of themselves, what happened? They ran away in fear. Jesus has called all of us to think lower of ourselves and higher of Him, not the other way around. So that's that section. And the final section here, what we see, Friday morning, early Friday morning, Jesus is arrested. He goes to this trial. And He doesn't defend Himself. We've seen this throughout this book when we looked at the Passion narrative and then also in Isaiah 53 and the other Gospels. It says Jesus was silent, like a sheep before the slaughters. And at Shearer's, Jesus was silent. He didn't defend Himself. Why? Because He has submitted to the Father. He's saying, now is truly the time. But when does He speak up? He speaks up when they ask Him, are you the Christ? Are you really the One? And what does He say? Just a very simple phrase, I am. It's the name of God. I am. I am who I am. I am the Christ. I am the one who will come and save His people. I am the Lord. And so he confesses. And what do they do? They charge him of blasphemy. Anyone who looks at the Gospels and says, says Jesus never claimed divinity, they're not paying attention to the Pharisees' response. They knew exactly what Jesus was claiming to be claiming to be God in the flesh, claiming to be the, tr- the true Messiah. And so they put him to death because they believed he was committing blasphemy. And then we see Peter. He's watching all this take place. 
He's watching Jesus be tried. He's watching Jesus arrested. And he's hiding. He doesn't step in. He doesn't help. He doesn't do any of that. And then when he's accused of being a follower of Jesus, first by a servant girl, and then by that same servant girl to a group of bystanders, and then by that group of bystanders to the rest of the crowd, all three times Peter denies it strongly to the point of casting curses on himself. And then the rooster crows. And what does it describe? Look at verse 72, the last verse of our passage. It says, Immediately the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus has said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Now I want to try to apply this all by pointing out, Jesus, by pointing out Peter's response. Again, we talked about Judas's response that he ran away in fear and had, had a sense of remorse about his sin. But what does Peter do? It says he remembered. What did he remember? He remembered what Jesus had said to him. And he broke down and wept. We know because of, Je- because of Peter's, the rest of his life and ministry, we know that in that moment... That was a true conviction of sin that would lead to a true repentance and following of Jesus in faith. And how did this conviction of sin take place? It took place by remembering who Jesus was and what Jesus had promised. First, that Peter would truly deny him, but also all the other things that that Jesus had demonstrated and shown Peter. Realizing what you've done to Jesus... Realizing what you've done to God against His holiness is where conviction of sin really starts. You know, a lot of people fear being found out in their sin. A lot of people fear the the consequences of their sin. But true conviction of sin is when we realize that sin is not just what brings about consequences. It's not just when people find out about us what's true. True conviction of sin is when we realize that we have sinned against a holy God. The sinfulness of sin hits us when we, when reality is that we have sinned against Jesus, when we have sinned against God, who is our Creator, who is our King, who is our Savior, but who is also our friend a friend of sinners. The best friend that a sinner could ever have. And when we realize that sin is continually betraying that friend and causing that friend to suffer on our behalf and denying him either in words or in action or running away from him in unbelief and disobedience, when we realize that sin is sin against a holy God, an eternal God, which deserves God's eternal wrath and displeasure, that's when we start to realize the sinfulness of sin. And I think that's what's taking place in Peter's heart right here. He remembered Jesus, and he broke down and wept. Believers in this room, does your sin hit you like that every once in a while? Does your disobedience against God or against Christ 
ever really cause you to break down and weep? To be hating that sin for what it is? Truly hating your sin because it's a sin against God? But then the good news that we get from this is that Peter's story is not over. That even when we are unfaithful, God is still faithful. Even when we are a terrible friend to Jesus, Jesus is a friend for sinners. He's a friend for deserters. He's a friend for weak, feeble, fearful disciples. And He's a friend for us, a friend of sinners. And so, friends, Jesus is here to welcome you, to welcome you back if you have been running away from Him, and to say to you, if you come to me in faith and in repentance, truly broken over your sin, and remember that Jesus went to the cross for you. He died for you. He suffered for you. But He rose again. And all of His promises are true. And one day you'll be able to feast with Him in heaven in the new kingdom if you come to Him in faith. Jesus is a friend for sinners. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your love. Thank You for Jesus. Jesus, thank You that all of these examples of those who betrayed You, who denied You, who deserted You, Lord, that they tell our story far too often. And so, Lord, help us to see that even in our worst moments against You, You still love sinners. You are a friend for sinners. A good friend, a faithful friend, the best friend, even when we are unfaithful. And so help us to be, help us to be better friends to one another but better friends to You as You empower us by Your Holy Spirit, reminding us of Your good friendship. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.